Let me start over here. <laughs> I'm not the regular pastor. And we appreciate Dave, Dave Crenshaw, who uh, fills in uh, our pulpit about every other week as the assistant pastor. Dave Silvernail, our uh, regular uh, pastor, is the uh, is on sabbatical. And uh, now he and I bear a lot of similarities. We're both kind of short, and we're both a little stout. But when we start talking, the accents give us away. Uh, I get to preach about as often as the White Sox win the pennant. <laughs> and I don't know who it was that thought it was a good idea for me to be preaching during the World Series, but uh, here I am. I uh, also feel somewhat obliged uh, to either tell some uh, story about my hometown or some lawyer story. And uh, so uh, years ago I heard this story about a, a married couple. They just they were on a honeymoon and they decided it would be a good idea to take a, a ride in a hot air balloon. And they, uh, they, they got up early one morning and they went out and they were up. And they hit a fog bank. Uh, fairly soon, and they drifted along. And they could tell they were moving, but they had no idea where. And finally, when the fog burned off and they lowered themselves down somehow a little bit, they could see they were way out in the middle of the country. And they, they, but they saw some guy walking along down along the road. And so they, they hollered down there to him, "Hey, buddy, where are we?" And he looked up and said, "You're in that balloon." And the husband turns to the wife and says, wouldn't you know it, we've drifted all this way and all we do is run into a lawyer. And she says, how do you know he's a lawyer? And the husband says, well, it's obvious. What he said was true, but it's of absolutely of no use to any of us whatsoever. I'll take my lawyer's hat off today. <laughs> and, uh, and we come to the Word of God, which is always and sharper than any two-edged sword. Let's pick up our text today uh, from Romans chapter 14, verses 13 through the end of the chapter, verse 23. We are in a uh, series on the book of Romans. We're marching right through. Uh, for a while there, we marched in place on Romans uh, 12, 1 and 2, but now we're picking up steam, and uh, Pastor Crenshaw covered the first half of chapter 14 last week. And this, the remaining verses, build on that uh, on that text. And so we'll, we'll go back and cover a little bit of ground again. But let's uh, let's consider, uh, starting with verse 13, this is the Word of God. I'm reading from the New King James Version. Therefore... Let us not judge one another anymore. Rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself. But to whom who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Yet if your brother is grieved because of your food, you are not walking in love. Do not destroy with food the one for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let your good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, 
but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which we may edify one another. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for a man who eats with offense. To eat, eat, nor drink wine, nor do anything by which your brother stumbles, or is offended, or is made weak. If you have faith, have it to yourself before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because he does not eat from faith. For whatever is not from faith is from sin. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, I pray that you would let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be spoken through the sermon today be acceptable in your sight and edifying to the people of God. In Jesus' name. Um, the subject matter of this passage is not one that gets preached on very much. This is one of the reasons why we're going through uh, an exposition of books of the Bible, is so that we touch on subjects that aren't often preached on, uh, among other reasons. There is a parallel passage uh, that Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. So this is the uh, God thought this was uh, God, Paul, through the inspiration of the Spirit, believed this was an important enough thing that it comes up to the church often enough that it needs to be dealt with in more than one context. Uh, Paul deals with it again obliquely in 1 Timothy chapter 4. We'll talk about that a little bit more as we go on. And even though this is something that's not preached on a lot, it's something that we come in contact with continually. Let's look at it. The larger context of what we're talking about was set by Pastor Crenshaw a few weeks ago in Romans 13.8. To wit, because Christ loved us, we ought also to love one another. That's our neighbor, and especially our Christian brother. The immediate context of what I've read today builds, as I mentioned, on the first part of Romans 14. If you weren't here last week, or if you were asleep last week, we'll uh, just do a, a brief review at verse 1. Paul talks about receive one, that is, receive a Christian brother, who is weak in faith, but not as to disputes over doubtful things. In other words, true Christians who believe and trust in Christ for their salvation sometimes bring to the church disagreements over peripheral issues. In particular, there are believers who believe who disagree over what godly living should look like. As a matter of conscience, people sometimes perceive that a given activity 
which in actuality is a matter of Christian freedom, they believe rather that it is a sin issue. And Paul goes through the first part of chapter 14 outlining what some of those are. And we'll touch on them in a minute. But the question that Paul is dealing with in this chapter is how does love get worked out when we have differences over issues of Christian freedom? How do we love our brothers and edify them in that context? Just as an aside or as a reminder, we're not talking here about sin issues. This is over disputable matters, Paul says. People can go to the opposite extreme, identifying something as a Christian of Christian freedom in order to justify their sin. In other words, there are two sides of the horse, and you can fall off either side. People can add godly, can add requirements of godly living on the one hand, and they can subtract from it on the other. We, uh, the, the real issue often boils down into how do we define sin issues? Which leads to a problem. When there's a dispute over these types of issues, no one readily admits that they're the weaker brother. Oh yeah, I'm, I, I might be wrong here. They don't, usually you don't find that that's people volunteering to say that. Now, as I mentioned in 1 Corinthians 8, there's a parallel passage. And here, in that passage, it speaks more of this in terms of conscience. The people, uh, the weaker brother is the party with the weak conscience. They, again, they believe things to be wrong. Uh, when they're, they're not necessarily wrong, but they believe them to be wrong. Let's talk about this thing about conscience. What is that? I believe that God places in people an innate ability to make moral judgments according to accepted societal or religious patterns of right and wrong. We make judgments often, frequently, every day, every hour. Um, but some people, in order to justify themselves, develop an ability to suppress their conscience. Uh, as Pastor Silverdale uh, preached on in, in Romans chapter 1, there are those uh, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And he, uh, Pastor Silverdale pointed out how in, in societies, uh, both ancient societies and in today's societies, even some within the church come to approve outright sin such as homosexuality, by suppressing their conscience. Um, in fact, Paul says that there are conscience, people's conscience can come to be seared with a hot iron and numb to the point where they pay no attention to it anymore. But for most, the question more resolves, revolves around the question of by what criteria do we determine what is right and wrong? We take that, and, and once we have uh, garnered a set of criteria, we begin to make judgments in our own lives and in others about it. 
our conscience needs to be informed by the Word of God. And if we do, we will find great freedom in Christ. Not to the point of lawlessness, uh, mind you, but, uh, but we will find freedom in Christ. Paul noted, however, that people's consciences get misinformed. And therefore they make judgments, uh, value judgments, moral judgments, based on the wrong criteria. Uh, in Paul's day, any of those issues related to the beauty of meat, the drinking of wine, and the observance of special days. As Pastor Crenshaw pointed out last week, a lot of that was specific to their cultural background. The Jewish people from the Jewish background were bringing uh, the ceremonial law into Christianity. It was hard to separate. Even Peter had a difficult time separating. You see the struggle that Peter faced in Acts chapter 10. They were all learning. And God gave a revelation to Peter. Uh, uh, he put him into a sleep and showed him a vision of unclean animals, things that he had never eaten, never partaken of. And he commanded Peter, here, Peter, eat it. Oh, no, Lord, not me. I don't touch that stuff. Okay? But God said, no, Peter, here. You're shaking your conscience over. We're informing, I'm informing you, Peter, that this is no longer the requirements of salvation. It is no longer the requirements of even pleasing me, of righteous living. And so Peter learned through that. But it's, it's often hard for us to learn those things. We still struggle over the same, a lot of the same issues today. We struggle over food issues. Uh, if, uh, if you are like me and will eat just about anything that comes along, do you ever feel judged by a vegetarian? You're sitting there. You know, they, they make sense, some, sense of judging. In fact, you take some uh, an organization like People for Ethical Treatment of Animals, here's the people that are trying to build a moral consciousness about eating meat. They're trying to redefine what it is that informs our consciousness. Uh, I don't know what they're basing it on, but it's not biblical, but that's, that is their effort. Um, and sometimes those of us who eat meat will judge them. Pretty hugging wackos anyway, right? Another thing that Paul touched on and we still struggle with today uh, is alcoholic beverage consumption. Uh, the temperance movement of the, in, in the United States in the uh, late 1800s, early 1900s, was very much a Christian-based movement. They could see an evil in society, especially after the Civil War, uh, of, of public drunkenness and the ruination of families. But there was an overreaction in a lot of ways, and a, an informing of the conscience that didn't necessarily come from the Word of God. But we're still, uh, in other parts of the country, not so much Washington D.C. area, uh, there is still a cultural, a Christian cultural sensitivity to uh, consuming alcohol and beverages. 
Uh, I know I grew up that way. And uh, I know when uh, when I came to this area, uh, as a first as an undergraduate student, uh, living with a family in D.C., a Christian family, a professor uh, in the Christian college I was going to and I went to live with him that summer, and he had been in the prison. Shocking. I, and for me it was, because I couldn't square it. That wasn't where my conscience had been informed. And later when I came back to law school, I went out to dinner with uh, some of my uh, friends and would uh, order a bottle of wine. I'm kind of curious about it, and I didn't. And in due course, I partook. I enjoyed it. But I didn't do so. I violated my conscience. Indeed. I, I had thought it was wrong, and for me, it was wrong. It wasn't until later when I went back and started looking into the issue and actually read a book by someone who believed that it was wrong, he convinced me from his own bad arguments that it was right. <laughs> it was okay. But the point, my point is, you see where I sinned by violating my conscience? It is always, always a sin to do something against conscience, whether that conscience is informed correctly. That's the point of this, one of the points of this passage that is a background to understanding how to live with people who have consciences informed by the wrong thing, even Christian people. Now, we might be tempted to say that, uh, well, if you're a weaker brother or you have a weak conscience, that's your problem, right? I mean, after all, it's weak. What the Bible says is a weak people, weak conscience. And as Pastor Crenshaw noted last week, the weaker brothers can become the bullies of the church. Well, Paul could have said to these people, look, those weaker brothers, they need to grow up and get over. Right? Is that what he says? Not at all. Now, Paul gives a different instruction about dealing with people whose consciences are in form. In 1 Timothy chapter 4. Here Paul is writing to the pastor of a church. And in that church there are people who say, abstain from meat, don't marry, adding extra biblical requirements. But Paul is saying very harsh words for such people, but he's saying that in the context of instruction. Now next week, French, I'll be preaching on chapter 15. We'll pick up on that theme a little more, but the idea for here for us today in this passage is to live in love with the rest of us and to live in love with those brothers. Verse 21, let's go back and revisit it, says that living in love with the people of God requires us to forego our Christian freedom if it offends another, two, if it causes another person to sin against their conscience, and three, if it's a weak. 
1 Corinthians 8, 9 says, Beware lest this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling block to those who are weak. If we get too focused on our own Christian freedom, then we too miss the point of Christian liberty. The kingdom of God is of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. He who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. Pleasing God does not consist of following extra-biblical requirements. Nor, however, does it consist on exercising our freedom and insisting on our righteousness. Love does not behave in this way, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. Love does not insist on its own way, nor, however, is it easily offended. So what does righteousness, if that's what we're supposed to pursue, what does it look like? Jesus says, if you love me, do what I can do. Not that that's a basis for our salvation on works, but out of thankfulness and reverence obedience to our King and our Redeemer. We are to put aside those sins which so easily entangle us. We have not been saved by grace to live in sin. We have not, we're not to, uh, to be saved by grace in order that sin may abound in our lives. We're still to fall apart. We're still to reach forward in obedience of the moral law. We are to pursue peace, harmonious relationships with each other, especially within the church. And thus, as much as it depends on live at peace with all this. And we are to have joy in the Holy Spirit. Our joy doesn't come from the exercise of our Christian freedom but it comes from the confidence and assurance that we have in our salvation. Jesus says to rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. He also says, let no man take away your joy, but see, but I will see you again, Jesus says, and you will rejoice your heart and see that no man takes your joy away from you. Just as an aside, as I was looking on Timothy's passage about joy, so often, joy in Christ is related to our sufferings. Health crisis or persecution, there often, in the midst of those trials, comes real joy, solitude. These things please God. In the NIV, Ephesians 5 10 says, Find out. What pleases God? That's our pursuit. And when we do so, these things often engender an approval by men. Not that that's what we're seeking, and sometimes they don't, but often it is a byproduct of pleasing God. On the flip side, we bring often dishonor to God and dishonor to the church when we squabble among ourselves. 
So thus Paul gives the instruction, verse 18, to the stronger brother, to pursue peace and the things that edify. We could turn the exercise of our own Christian freedom into sin if we bring contention or we tear down a brother. Paul says, don't tear down what God is trying to build up. And our own Christian freedom can do that. Jesus said that it would be better if a millstone were hung around someone's neck and they'd be thrown into the lake than if they caused a little one to Let me just give you a couple of examples of things that, that we've experienced. Uh, years ago, uh, uh, the church that uh, down in Gainesville that we went to for, for many years, uh, we had a uh, retreat uh, every year. We would have it out at an Assembly of God uh, campground uh, over in West Virginia. And we did, this was an annual thing, and somebody in the church had a connection with people involved that ran the camp. Uh, and we do different activities every year. And one year, uh, somebody thought it would be a good idea for somebody to bring their fiddle and they had a square dance. I wasn't there then. But uh, they had a square dance. And um, that occasioned an unwitting uh, problem with the people that ran the camp. Those who uh, ran the camp We're not very pleased with the fact that dancing, shopping, dancing had, had carried on in the camp. Uh, but to them, it was a sin. And we had unwittingly agreed to And so thus we sinned against people. We didn't know it. But at the same time, it was an apology and no attempt to try to insist in our own way, or to try to, dis- to try to argue with them about it. It's our fault. Um, when Catherine and I were planning our wedding a few years ago, uh, one of the issues that came up was we serve alcohol at our wedding. I think most people in our family expect us. That's just kind of a good course. But we were aware that there were people on both sides of our family that had drinking problems. We want to give those people the occasion to sin. Was it within our Christian freedom to serve alcohol? We think we thought it was. But we decided to forego on that occasion because we didn't even want non-believers to have an occasion to sin. Again, understand, we're not talking here about things for which God gives us a positive command to do. Sometimes the thing that God calls us to do is going to cause an offense. The gospel itself, Paul says, is a stumbling block to the Jews, and it's foolishness to the Gentiles. We are going to be taught fools, and people are going to not like it. But we're still required to do those things those aren't issues of Christian freedom. Those are 
positive believers. But even here, we could find that among some Christians, uh, that even, even among some Christians, uh, sometimes they are not ready for the meat of the world. They're still on milk. Sometimes we can jam that meat down their throat, lest they choke on it. And when it's done in the wrong spirit, it's wrong. Ephesians Paul, in Ephesians, Paul says, speak the truth and lie. We're apt to sin against our brother. If, if, we, speak, if we speak the truth without love, we're apt to sin against our brother. But by the same token, if we try to love without speaking the truth, we were apt to lose people in their sin. And that horse has two sides. There can even be times when our theology, our reformed theology, as correct as it may be, sometimes as correct as we may think it be, can be a cause, can be presented in such a manner, in an unloving way, as to be dishonoring to God and counterproductive to the advance of the gospel. The point here, as, it, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, is that whether we eat or whether we drink or whatever it is that we do, do it all to God's will. And be fully persuaded in our own minds that what we're doing is right. We can't bring honor and glory to God if we're sinning against our brother or causing him to stumble. John said, if we don't love our brother, don't love God. Jesus said that, how is it that all men will know that we're his disciples? There's a sign. There's a symbol. How is it that people will know that we are his disciples? Because we love them. By this, all men shall know that you are mine. And as I said before, as much as it depends on you, live at peace with all men, especially Christian brothers. Be fully persuaded, then, a practical application here. Be fully persuaded that when we undertake an activity, that we're not sinning against our own conscience. Make sure that we're not rationalizing our activities as an excuse for sin. Never act against conscience. And if, if we're not sure whether what we're doing is right or wrong, then it's time to turn to the Word of God and explore it. And if we still can't figure it out, then seek the counsel of godly people who are here to aid and help us. Let's talk it through. If need be, Paul says, we need to have our Christian freedom to ourselves. And that's not a call to be hypocritical, but it is to exercise our Christian freedom in a discreet manner. If we know there are those around us who may take offense. Sometimes it is that you know, if you have to ask, well, don't bother doing it at all. 
resolved, as 1 Corinthians 8.13 says, if my use of some aspect of my Christian freedom makes my brother stumble, then I will never use my Christian freedom in that way. Christian freedom is not a call to something. It's a call to permissiveness in something. You don't have to do it. You can abstain from it. And if that's what's good for our brothers and sisters in Christ, There will come a time, eventually, for edification and teaching of the, of the weaker brothers. But our instruction today is that, as we go back to Romans 12, is that let love be without hypocrisy. Be kindly affectionate one to another with brotherly love and honor, giving preference. And all those who God's people, we're called to